Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, we all know we need to reduce our plastic footprint, and my guest this week is a pioneer in doing so. Her name is Celia Poole. She is the co-founder of Dame, a period product startup which manufactures and sells organic tampons, reusable applicators, and pads. In this episode, we discuss how and why she started the business. We touch on the challenges of the industry, which is characterized by negative language, synthetic ingredients, and waste. We also discuss how she aims to change things, her advertising campaigns, and the trials and tribulations of being a B Corp. Celia was great. She's a superb innovator and a great entrepreneur. Do check out her website at wearedame.co. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Celia Paul, welcome to the podcast. Celia, how did you start your career? So I actually didn't start off in tampons. I first started off in the art world and I was working first for an art dealer and then in an auction house as a project manager. And it was only actually after having my first baby that I even entered the world of tampons. And how did you enter the world of tampons? Well, it definitely wasn't something I kind of was scrolling through and thought, right, that's for me. I basically just had my first child. I knew I didn't want to go back to the place that I was currently working. And I knew I wanted to do something with purpose that centered around supporting women, but I had absolutely no idea what form that was going to take. And it was actually through a chance encounter with a friend, actually a friend of a friend, where we got to talking and suddenly this whole issue about tampons and tampon delivery came up. And I think over quite a few glasses of wine and this person as a guy, we suddenly got questioning about, well, I had just forgotten my tampons. He was questioning, you know, why, if you know this thing is going to happen every month, why are you not getting these on delivery? And it was around the same time as Dollar Shave Club had come up in the US. And at the end of the night, we had a kind of business plan. And the next morning we thought we'd crack on with it. And that was basically version one of the company, which we ran for a few years under the name Sanitary Al. But it was only from running that for a few years did we actually see the bigger problem. And the bigger problem was really around the waste element and around what actually goes into these things. And it was the fact that we had absolutely no idea that sanitary protection, so tampons and pads, are not regulated in the EU, which means these companies don't need to disclose their ingredients. So all manner of substances are put in products which appear white, fluffy and cotton, but are not. And that shocked us because I think the link between that and all the waste that comes from it, the link that that and all manner of issues that women face, such as vaginal irritation, painful periods, prolonged periods, that was something we really wanted to get to grips with. And it was what really spurred us on to think, okay, right, maybe there's nothing available on the market. Maybe we should create our own product. Just take me back to Sanitary Owl, the subscription-based model. How long were you running that business? And what was the sort of value proposition as you saw it? Sure. So we ran that for about three years. And the real big thing behind it was convenience. So we wanted to offer women the ability to mix and match their products and have them delivered through the letterbox into their home. And when we were talking about products, we wanted to make sure that we were offering them everything that was available on the market, both disposable and reusable. And this was the part where I started myself being introduced to the non-standard types of menstrual protection that were out there, things like 
reusable pads, menstrual cups, organic cotton tampons. And we wanted to wrap all this up in a much better messaging and language because I had realized that not much had really changed from when I was young in terms of this whole taboo nature of periods, the fact that there is massive lettering on lots of packets saying discreet protection. There is massive things around having wrappers that are silent so no one knows you're on your period and products to make you feel fresh. And I thought, God, I just had a baby and she was a girl. And I thought, I don't want this same kind of messaging filtering through to my daughter that was filtered through to me because I know how limiting that messaging is. And I know that girls' confidence drops massively when they get into puberty. And it's not going to be helped by all this negative messaging around what is a very natural bodily function. And did you have brands that you looked up to and brands that speak to women in a you know, more constructive way when you were developing the proposition of Sanitary Owl? I don't think they were necessarily brands within sort of our zone, which were speaking well to me, but there were definitely brands which I really identified with. People like, and I know it's an obvious one and cliched, Patagonia, you know, that is someone who lives and breathes their values. And actually a much smaller one is Elvis and Cress, who they're an incredible company who take old fire hoses and repurpose them into beautiful wallets, bags. And they really, really own what they're trying to do. And everything they do is all around repurposing, reusing, not creating any more waste, but creating something beautiful out of it that someone really wants. So let's wind forward then to Dame. What were your non-negotiables when you were devising Dame? And obviously you'd had three years of experience in the sector. Can I call it the sector? What were your non-negotiables when you were devising that brand? Well, around the time when we were creating it, we were suddenly introduced to B Corp. And I don't know if you're familiar with B Corp, the certification, which is all around using business as a force for good. And as soon as we read into it, we thought, boom, that is exactly what we feel. And so we went through a whole very rigorous and very long process to get certified. But essentially, it all centered around this thing that is that decision you're making, is it for a good purpose, essentially? And it made all our decisions very, very easy. So initially, when we were looking at different types of branding or different types of packaging, we weren't going for the cheapest. We were going for ones which we knew were the right decision to make. And yes, it might be more expensive, but that was part of what we were trying to achieve. And in terms of making sure that we had ethical supply chains, in terms of making sure that we weren't creating more waste into the system that we needed to. And that meant that we refused quite a lot of partnerships, quite a lot of packaging, quite a lot of things which would have made our journey a bit easier and a bit quicker because it was important for us to make sure that we were building something that we knew we were proud of and we knew had longevity. I see. Well, we heard about B Corps because we had Simon Rogerson from Octopus Group in, which is also another B Corp. Um, and he described getting B Corp status as like filling out the worst kind of tax return that anyone has ever made you do. Was it a similar process for you? or? Oh my God, yeah. I don't know who, what brain created that thing. It's like that person must have the most intricate dreams because it's just a spider's web of different things and you never quite get to the end of the maze. So yes, it was. It took us over a year in order to do it. But at the same time, it's good because you know you need 
that kind of rigor and that kind of detail in order to make sure that the right kind of companies are getting through. And can you give me an example of elements of of it which are difficult? I think it's a very, very long and winding road. I mean, it goes from everything from obviously the products that you make and the suppliers that you work with to the makeup of your team, to the light bulbs and the energy that you use in your offices. And when you're going down your supply chain, you know, especially as a young brand, that's quite difficult to trace. You know, you're having to go and ask these people who already, you're already pretty small fry for them to work with and ask them, how much water do you use? How much electricity do you use? Where are you sourcing this from? And so, yeah, that itself was a very sort of lengthy process. But at the same time, it's good because it forces you to become aware. And actually, since then, we now, as a small brand, publish an impact report every year. And in that impact report, we are looking at our carbon footprint. We're constantly looking at all different elements of our supply chain. And, you know, we'll hold our hands up and say, we're not perfect with our supply chain right now. Definitely not. But it makes us always work harder in order to fix things or iterate things and find out new sources and new suppliers and people who are really kind of trying to push in the right direction. But I think increasingly we're seeing definitely from the kind of younger consumers that this is the way that they're wanting their brands to go. They're wanting their brands to be accountable. They're wanting their brands to embody their values. And so the favorable feedback that you get from it is 100% worth it. Yeah, I see. And going back to the value proposition of Dame, I mean, is your growth trajectory all about taking market share from the the current incumbents? And therefore, is a lot of your marketing messaging almost educational rather than persuasive? Our ultimate goal is to try and convert as many people across to reusables as possible. And we always say that doesn't matter if that's ours, it just has to be something that's reusable because, you know, the stats when you look at it around sort of 100 billion period products are thrown away every year. And the majority of those are single use, have plastic in them and can't be recycled because they've had blood on them. And so therefore they can't. And That waste stream, it's not a choice. It's not like people choose to go and have their period. They have to, and they have to have something to manage it with. But at the same time, they don't need to be using disposable products, which are filled with all sorts of things, which they don't know what it's doing to their body. And and one thing which I kind of always say to friends when I'm talking to them is like, it's incredible. You think about every single piece of food that you put in your mouth but you don't think really about what's inside the thing that you're putting either inside your body or next to a very intimate area of your skin. And you don't think about what that is doing to your body as well. And so for us to be able to convert people across to things which are not only better for the planet, but better for them was really important. And yes, ultimately, that also means taking market share from the big players, which, you know, there's obviously a lot more marketing that we'd love to do if we had bigger coffers and bigger lawyers. But we have to kind of tread carefully in the way that we do it. But at the same time, really, it is an education piece. It is getting people to talk about it, question it. I think the really interesting thing that I've noticed since working in this now for the last eight years is there's been a big shift in the last five. And that has been around social media. That's been around people not just using the product that their mother gave them or their friend gave them and then never questioning it again. Because of social media, people are now questioning the products that they're using and they're more open to trying different things. And that for us is really exciting because it signals that people are ready for change. And what at the moment are your current routes to market? Are you a 100% direct-to-consumer business? 
No, so we're actually sort of 50-50. We're a direct consumer, but we're also in retail. So we are stocked in Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Ocado, Boots, Planet Organic, ASOS, Next, and sort of a whole host of other independents. And it's really important that we have that omnichannel approach because people are traditionally used to buying these things in store quite often as part of their weekly shop. And so being able to have that touch point for them is really important. But at the same time, that benefit of direct consumer where you are speaking to your consumer and you are really building a relationship with them. I mean, we launched a product last year, our reusable pads, which are unbelievably amazing. And I say that as someone who hated using pads growing up because of the fact it felt like a plastic bag rustling around in my legs. And we essentially had our community to go and build this product with and go and test it out, see what they thought about it. When they came back and said, this is great, but we really don't like this. We were able to iterate on the product and build it with them. And so as a small brand, that kind of market research is invaluable. Has the competition adapted over the last eight years of running Dame? Have you started to see more products like yours on the marketplace? Yeah, there's been a sort of two-pronged change. I think first of all, there've been many more challenger brands coming in. What we've noticed is the majority of them are white label people. So they are white labeling products and then putting a brand on, which is very different to what we do. We make our products, we innovate from scratch, we create and do everything in-house. But we're seeing a a sort of rise of people kind of coming into the category because they see that something is changing, which is great and very exciting because it means that there's more of a spotlight and more of a reason for people to question the current products. And then from the big competitors, yeah, we've started to see little kind of footsteps into changing, um, trying to put out products which claim to be sustainable, but there are quite iffy claims if you actually read into the kind of smaller print and see that things which claim to be 100% something or something else, if you read the small print, there's a little bit more to it than that. But I think the fact that that's a signal that they see that this is definitely where things are going. And, you know, we see from our retailers, like we to date have never asked for a retailer meeting. All our retailers that we are in are because they have come to us, which as a small brand is incredible. But it it's a massive indication that that is where the market is going. And these retailers are really seeing that they want to make sure that they're there at the forefront, giving their customer what they want. And so, Celia, what then do you see as the sort of difficult part of your business? Because to me, it does seem, you know, like a no-brainer in some respects. What's the difficult part? Is it the the education side? Is it the operation side? Or is it sort of getting the product out to market? Where do you sort of see the sort of pinch point and difficulty in your Uh, business? There are pinch points everywhere. (laughs) Where to start? (laughs) Pinch points. No, I mean, you've just got to look at the product itself. You know, the product is not something people are carrying around in their hands. (laughs) So if you can see like, ah, so-and-so's got that. But this is why we also have things which make the whole holistic experience better. So for example, we really go to town on what we feel the barriers to entry are. Like with our pads, we knew that people would think, okay, well, what happens if I need to change it when I'm out and about? What do I do? And so we created this really beautiful dry bag. And that dry bag is taking from extreme sports technology where someone can change their pad, put it in this dry bag, which will keep it super sealed, super tight. But then at the same time, if they need to rinse it before they want to put it in with the rest of their wash, but they're not putting their wash on for a few days, they can pour water into it and it will still be sealed. So no water will escape. 
But that also allows us to get our brand out there, put our brand on the shelf so that people can see us. So yes, that's definitely a pinch point. The fact that obviously, like I said, traditionally people aren't used to talking about this. So it's really important for us. And it's one of our key pillars is to make this topic acceptable and to normalize it. And it was part of the reason why we did a big London bus campaign earlier this year, where we put this incredible photograph that one of our customers had taken with her tampon string hanging out of her pants and put it on 200 London buses because we wanted to show this as a normal thing. And the more that we can normalize this, the more people will talk about it. You know, the more we can tell people, right, make sure that you are talking about this to not just your mother or your sister or your friend, but your father or your brother or your nephew or whoever it might be, because the more we can normalize this, the more people feel comfortable making changes. Did you see a pickup in in sales as a result of that, the, the bus campaign? Yes, definitely. And we saw a pickup in sales. We also saw a pickup in the types of partners who wanted to come and work with us. You know, we've had approaches from major fashion brands wanting to work with us, which for a tampon company is not really that usual. But it is, you know, it's definitely a pinch point. It's, it's difficult to try and persuade people to do something when they don't want to talk about it at all. But we are seeing that changing. Obviously, sort of other pinch points, like with any small company, is, you know, funding, fundraising, building teams, supply chain, you know, everything. There's always going to be challenges. That's, I guess, half the fun of starting up one of these things. Well, let's stay on raising capital and fundraising, because I know that you are you're starting to knock on doors. Um, I mean, the first question is, how do you balance your time, you know, between operating and, and fundraising? Um, I'm not going to lie. It's a real pain because <laughs> you are trying to do two jobs at the same time. So it does just mean that you know, at the end of the day, you are having to catch up with everything else that you might have missed. But yes, we are out fundraising. And I think what is really exciting about us is I feel for our brand, we've got the difficult things covered. We have got products which are not only really high performance, they're very innovative, they're really in demand. We've got a super strong brand, which is really sort of cutting through the noise of our competitors. And we have for a brand our size, which is only two years old, incredible distribution. What we're looking for now is obviously to do the execution on that and build out the team because so far we've been threadbare in order to execute on everything we've got going and really sort of cement us as the number one alternative brand in the UK. So let's pretend if you did, if you raised money tomorrow, that's where you you met your target and raised cash overnight. How would you allocate those funds? What do you think that's needed in your business to take it to the next level? Definitely in terms of people, it's salespeople, product people, operations people. You know, we have been really running threadbare for the amount of stuff that we do and to really build out so that we can actually achieve. We have to turn down so many incredible opportunities because we just quite simply can't do it. We have a really strong and exciting product rollout over the next 12 to 18 months, which obviously funding would go into that. We have a lot of big campaigns and lots of digital that we're really excited about doing. So yes, there is a lot to be getting on with. And, but I think sort of right now, number one is we're looking for team. Yeah, I see. And do you, going back to the, the kind of investor you're looking for, I mean, are you sort of at angel investor stage? Are you thinking about venture capital? Are you thinking about, um, you know, some sort of mentor, you know, hands-on type role? What, or what doors are you knocking on at the moment? I think right now we're looking for someone who holds the same values as us and really sees the values of the business. One of the big sectors that we would be really interested in is consumer. And those are the types of people that we're speaking to, people who get brands, who get consumer products. 
we are obviously looking at this as sort of one of our first institutional rounds, but to be honest, like I love angel investors and so I would never say no to an angel investor because I just think the care and attention you can get from angels is amazing. But yes, people who really can help us execute on what we're trying to do, because this isn't something that we just see confined to the UK. We sell globally through our direct consumer sites. So we already get a lot of sales from around the world, in particular the US, and have already gone through sort of various different submissions and trying to work out our certifications. But essentially see this at some point in the not too distant future of, of trying to push this out further. So being able to have the right kind of partner at some stage, whether it's this round or the next, in order to help us do that would be really exciting. And is the fact that you're a B Corp turning investors on or turning investors off? It's funny. I don't think, in my opinion, B Corp has really filtered through to investors that much. I think it is filtering through to consumers more, definitely more than when I first started. And I don't think consumers knew what a B Corp was. I think now, increasingly, that there is a lot more understanding of it. But no, it's not something I see with investors. I see it a lot through recruitment. People love to work at a B Corp, but not so much from investors. And then let's look to the future and let's say, you know, you, you get past your, your various rounds of funding. What do you think that is the sort of total addressable market of this, the international addressable market? And where would you like to see the business in five years time, for example? Well, the category itself is a $65 billion category globally. So it's huge. And it's a category which in certain markets hasn't really been opened up. So you still have quite a lot of developing countries who haven't been exposed to these types of products. The obviously wish of us is to make sure that the disposable markets don't get there first and create huge amounts of habits and waste, which is completely unnecessary. But, you know, it's half the global population and it's a category that has new entrants coming into it every year. Thinking about your daughter, how else would you like attitudes to change in this category? Categories are much better work than sector, which is one I went for originally. <laughs> um, how would you like attitudes to change in this category? I think essentially it just goes back to this thing of normalization, of making sure that this subject is seen as normal, that we stop using words such as, which I think I actually even used in your intro, of sanitary protection. Mm. You know, why are we talking about sanitary? Why are we talking about clean? And really making sure that this becomes something which is just accepted. Because if a girl coming into puberty feels something negative around this blood that comes out of her every month, what else is she going to feel about that part of her body? And therefore, what else is her boyfriend in the future going to feel about that if she's feeling negative about it? It has ripple effects into so many things. And those ripple effects can have really detrimental consequences. You know, one of the big pushes from gynecological cancer charities is around people going for smear tests because lots of people don't want to do it because they're embarrassed. Why are they embarrassed about this part of their body? It stems from people treating it as not a normal part, from treating it as unclean, from treating it for various different reasons. And that kind of thing needs to stop so that we can have a better equilibrium. You know, we're still have so much in this country that we need to change, but we're very lucky in the fact that our big issues are Yes, some people missing school and, and period poverty is really rife in the UK. And, you know, some of us feel that we have to hide tampons up our sleeve when we go to the loo. But if you go outside this country, you know, you have girls consistently missing weeks of school every month because they don't 
have anything for their period and they can't go to school just bleeding down their leg. And that is not helping them become equal with their male counterparts. And that kind of stuff has to change. It's insane that it still happens in this day and age. Now, Celia, final question. Um, what advice would you give to budding entrepreneurs, you know, who are maybe coming out of university or coming out of school or maybe even in jobs and thinking about doing something entrepreneurial? What would, advice would you give to them if they are sort of thinking about pursuing something entrepreneurial? Don't do it. <laughs> Run for the hills. Stay in something that pays you well. No, I think I think definitely go into it with your eyes open. But I think if you're... If you're just going into it and you you think you do have an idea, I think stress test that idea, you know, really ask yourself, am I looking at the problem or am I just looking at the solution and trying to retrofit a problem to it? Because if you are doing the latter, you're going to waste time and money doing that. There has to be a real market out there for it with the real pain point that you're addressing. Otherwise, things get very tough and not very fun. But if you go after something where you actually do think there is a real pain point and you do think people are willing to pay money for whatever it is, then you can keep on pursuing it and just you can keep going and going and you will have many, many rejections because that's part and parcel of it. And just make sure that you have lots of support systems in terms of friends and family and, you know, maybe one or two people who have got more experience to fall back on. But once you feel that you've got the bit between your teeth, yeah, just keep going. Celia Poole, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Celia Poole, the co-founder of Dame. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like and subscribe to the podcast? Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.